Oh, praise God for that. As I was looking at these beautiful uh, wooden walls behind me, uh, I noticed something that just uh, blessed me. Uh, in Romans chapter 12 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about the body of Christ and how each of us is a, a part of the body of Christ, but each of us together in that body, each of us is unique. We have spirit, different spiritual gifts, different personalities. We're all unique, yet God has put us all together in the body of Christ. And, and I looked at all the different colors uh, of wood. I'm so glad they didn't put all the dark pieces together and all the lighter pieces together. And, and the, it would have been boring. This is beautiful. It's, it's like a patchwork. And it's a beautiful part of the body of Christ. God is so good. Good God Almighty. I love that song. I'm standing up in the front. I, I didn't have eyes in the back of my head. I wondered how many of you were dancing to that song. And it's hard to, hard to stand still, isn't it? God is so good. This morning we're going to be uh, opening a new series, uh, sermon series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Let's pray as we, as we begin. Lord, I thank you. You are an awesome God. There's no words in our vocabulary to adequately describe your greatness. All we can do is just confess that, Lord, with our hearts, with our voices, with our spirits. And your word tells us that you inhabit our praise. You, you love it. You uh, enjoy the fellowship. And Lord, we just thank you for that. Thank you for that you have not left us on our own without any way to, uh, to walk in a way that pleases you. But you've given us your word and you inspired it by your Holy Spirit. We can go to it, the solid rock, the foundation of our faith. And you've given us your Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, who testifies to our hearts and our spirits as we read your word. And he applies it, he convicts us, he convinces us. Sometimes he says, boy." But Lord, we, we just look forward to this time. We have a few minutes to spend in your word. Please speak to us. We pray this uh, through Jesus our Savior. Amen. Before we get into the book of 1 Thessalonians, um, let's do a little bit of thinking about the back story. It wasn't just an accident that Paul decided to sit down when he was in Corinth and write uh, a letter to the church in Thessalonica. There's, there's a context to it. And until we understand that context, much of what we're going to read is not going to make as much sense as it ought to, and it's not going to bless us the way we should. So some of the backstory uh, it goes back to Paul's second missionary journey. And uh, who was, who was Paul's best friend after Paul was converted? Starts with a B. Barnabas, right. Do you know what the word Barnabas means? Son of encouragement. It's the same word we get talking about the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter or our encourager. Son of encouragement. When Paul, who was Saul, had been persecuting the Christians... And then he had his amazing uh, experience with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he was converted. He was on fire for the Lord. And he stayed around for a while there in, uh, in town and, and, and was 
preaching the gospel, and he wanted to go to Jerusalem, and he wanted to meet the apostles. So he got to Jerusalem, but Paul's reputation preceded him. What was his reputation? He was a murderer. He was a persecutor of the church. He drove fear into the hearts of people. And nobody, not even the apostles, dared associate with him, except one man, Barnabas. Barnabas was a solid believer. He was established there in the church of Jerusalem. He, as the encourager, the son of encouragement, came alongside Paul. And he took him to the apostles and vouched for him. He said, this guy's for real. He is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of Barnabas coming alongside of Paul, he was then accepted within the church. And you know the rest of the story of Paul. Well, they, were, they had gone on a missionary journey, sent out from the church at Antioch. They had come back. It's been about four or five years, possibly. And they feel like they need to go back and check on the condition of the churches and encourage the believers. So they're getting ready to go. And on their first missionary journey, somebody had accompanied them. Do you remember the name of their helper? John Mark. John Mark happened to be Barnabas' cousin. But partway through the journey, he got discouraged. We're not told the details of what happened, but John Mark abandoned them and went back home to Jerusalem. Didn't set well with Paul. So now they're getting ready for the second missionary journey, and Barnabas says, okay, I'm ready. Let's take John and give him a second chance. Paul says, no way, he's a deserter. We have to have somebody we can count on who's not going to abandon us. Barnabas, who... I see as a, he, he's not the Paul type one person, type A personality. He, he's more uh, a people person, and he wanted to give his cousin a second chance. And so he defended John Mark, and Paul, it says, and he had an intense disagreement. So much so that now we have multiplication. We have two teams going out instead of one. Barnabas took John Mark, and, and he went um, to, where did he go? He went to Cyprus. And then Paul, he chose Silas. Silas had been in Jerusalem. Paul met him. Silas, it says, was a prophet. And he got established as one of the prophets and teachers in Antioch of the church. So Paul chose Silas, and they took off and went through Syria and Cilicia. So they journeyed and, and visited the cities where they'd preached before. And they got to the city of Derby, and a young man joined them. Remember who that might be? It starts with a T. Timothy, yeah. Timothy joined them there, and then they went to Troas, right on the coast, looking across the, the waters to the continent of Europe. And some say he was Paul's personal physician. He's actually the one that God chose to use to write the book of Luke. What do you think his name is? <laughs> it's not a trick question. Luke. <laughs> he also is the author of the book of Acts. And so... In chapter 16, when we find them leaving Troas, instead of they, now it's we went so-and-so. So we find all sorts of clues there. So they, they, while they were in Troas, Paul at night had a vision of a man from Macedonia. We don't have an identity to this anonymous man. But he was across the sea on the continent of Europe. And he said, come help us. Paul took that to mean the Holy Spirit was moving their direction that way. And so they got on board a ship, and they headed across, and they were the first ones to share the gospel in the continent of Europe. 
they came to uh, Philippi, where they had a, a big adventure. Uh, there was no Jewish synagogue in the city of Philippi. There weren't enough Jewish men there to be able to qualify to have a synagogue. But there was a place of prayer by the river. And, and Paul and, and Silas went there on the Sabbath thinking they might find some uh, Jewish people. And they did, and he started sharing the gospel with these ladies who were there alongside the river. Several of them came to know the Lord through that. Lydia, the seller of purple, a, a wealthy woman, was one of them. Well, so Paul started this church in Philippi. But while he was there, there was a, a devil worshiper who uh, had a girl who was demon-possessed. And she kept following Paul around saying, these are, these are prophets, these are men of the Most High, of Jesus, the Messiah. And day after day she kept doing this. And it irritated Paul, so finally he turned around and cast the demon out. That's Paul, right? <laughs> but now this man who was making money from this demon-possessed girl lost his source of income. And he stirred up the town against Paul, so much so that he ended up going to jail and uh, we'll not go into the details of the story, but the Holy Spirit miraculously saved Paul and Silas out of that jail, the inner sanctum of the jail. And the Philippian jailer got saved, he and his whole household. But they got run out of town. That's kind of the story of Paul. And, you know, you've heard Mary had a little lamb, and everywhere Mary went, the sheep was, lamb was sure to go. Uh, Paul was an apostle, and everywhere he went, a, a riot was soon to follow. <laughs> and he ended up in jail more often than not. So they, they escaped and they went to Thessalonica. Now Thessalonica was an important seaport. It was the prosperous capital of Macedonia there in northern Greece. That's where we come now to chapter 17 of the book of Acts. So if you want to turn there, it'll also be on your screen. Starting at verse 1. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks. So God-fearing Greeks would be technically called proselyte Jews. They're, they're Gentiles who came to believe in God and uh, accept the Jewish traditions and, and the Jewish scriptures. And also a number of the leading women. But the Jews becoming jealous. Now it's not the God-fearing Jews or the Jews that accepted Christ, but the Jews that were the leaders around became jealous. And taking along some of the wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar in attacking the house of Jason. Now Jason was one of the new believers and it's believed that, that Paul and Silas were staying in his house. They were seeking, uh, Paul and Silas though, uh, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. 
When they didn't find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world, literally turned the world upside down, have come here also. Wouldn't it be neat if Edgewood and Red Hills had that reputation? These people, these Christians who have turned the city upside down. Oh, God, let it be so. These people who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away. So that's the backstory to... uh, what we find then in the book of First uh, Thessalonians. So let's, let's kind of review what we just read. <clears throat> Paul met with them in a synagogue for how long? Remember? Three Sabbaths. That's three weeks. Many commentators believe that that was about the extent of Paul's stay in Thessalonica. A little over three weeks to a month. Others say, no, he must have been there longer to have had all this thing happening in the church. But as far as we know, it was a very short visit. Uh, not by Paul's uh, desire, <laughs> but by the desire of those who were getting him out of the town. But what did he do? It says he reasoned with them from Scripture. Think about that for a second. The word reason there is the word dialogue. That's where we get our English word. So we had conversations in the synagogue with these Jewish people. Conversations from the Scriptures, drawing out all the prophecies regarding Christ. It also says he explained to them. Literally, that word means he opened the scriptures to them. Uh, Think about uh, the disciples that were on the road to Emmaus after Jesus' resurrection. And he appeared to them and they didn't recognize him. And it says he explained to them the scriptures that Christ must die and be raised again. And, And later on, after they realized who it was, they said, Were not our hearts burning within us? While he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us. So first of all, there's conversation. Then there was getting into scripture and showing evidence here that, that this is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And then it says he gave evidence to them. Literally, that means to set before them. It's like an apology or a defense. He was able not just to explain the scriptures, but then to back it up and to prove it was true. So there was a kind of a a progression there in his conversation with these Jews. Some of the Jews and some of the, many of the proselytes and many of the prominent Jewish women believed. The rest of them violently opposed them attacked Jason and, his, and the rest of the followers. Then the, the, the believers sent Paul and Silas away by night. They continued on their journey. They went to Berea, to Athens, and to Corinth. This is after Thessalonica. And when he's in Corinth, he's thinking about what's going on at Thessalonica, wondering how those brothers and sisters in Christ are doing. So he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to get a report on how they're doing. Timothy comes back and finds them in Athens, excuse me, in Corinth, and uh, gives a glowing report on what's going on. After this short period of time, this group of believers is solidly now part of the church of God. And that prompted Paul to write this first letter of Thessalonians. 
That's kind of a, a lot of talking to get us to the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. But it's important to get that picture. To have in mind a short period of time. You have uh, the fundamentals of the gospel being con- conversed about, explained, and then dem- uh, apologized for. Not apologizing, saying I'm sorry, but defending that it's true. And you have the beginning of a church. Now, the book of 1 Thessalonians isn't a really long one, but it helps us if we're thinking about he wasn't there for a long time, he must have taught the things that are really important, the things that are priorities. So in this book, we're going to find the fundamentals of the gospel message, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We're going to find who they are, their identity in Christ. We're going to find the importance of sanctified, set-apart, holy living And we're going to find that he spent a lot of time talking about the second coming of Christ. Those were all key elements in Paul's preaching and teaching and discipleship during that short period of time. That tells me that these probably ought to be things I'm taking seriously also and giving much attention to. So that being said, I I look at the first six verses here. That's what we're going to cover this morning. And to me, what it is, it's marks of a vibrant church. What does vibrant mean? Full of life. Full of life. Yeah. You, have our, you have the word vibrate. You know, something is vibrating, it's moving. It's not just static, not a dead battery. A church that's full of life. What are marks of a, full, of a church that's full of life, that's vibrant? We start, first of all, looking at their identity. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul and Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. There's a little word there, a two-letter word that is crucial to our understanding of this passage. Can you guess what it might be? Starts with I and ends with N. In. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father. And we skip over that. And and we say, yes, he's writing to the Thessalonians. But that's really important. That identifies who they are. In the, the New Living Translation, it says, to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to the book of Colossians. This isn't on the screen, so you have to let your fingers do the walking here. Just a a book back, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Listen to how Paul described it in this chapter, what it means to belong to Christ. It's talking about knowing God and and being strengthened with all of his power. And then it says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. He transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. So there's three verses, uh, three uh, verbs there. He qualified us, he rescued us, and he transferred us. He qualified us. We've been watching some of the Olympics. There's, you know, to be an Olympic athlete, 
you have to qualify. And it takes years and years and years of training to get to the point to where you're qualified to represent your country in the World Games, in the Olympics. So what do we do? How can we qualify to be part of God's family, part of God's kingdom? And we're told in the scripture, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. We have a part in that process. We, we repent, we confess, we have belief, we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But God is the initiator. God is the one who does what we could not do. He qualifies us. He puts his stamp of approval. This is my child. That's what he's done to each of you who claim Jesus as your Savior. He qualified you. There's nothing you could do to qualify yourself. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. He not only qualified us, he rescued us. I don't like to be in a position where I have to be rescued because it's telling me that I'm beyond myself. I'm helpless. Without outside help, I'm done for. We think about the flash floods in the slot canyons there in Zion and the flash flood watches that are around us right now. I don't want to be in a position where somebody has to come and rescue me. I remember one time when I was in junior high school, and my friends and I used to go to Seal Beach in Southern California during the summer. This was before surfboards. This was in the days of rubber rafts. And we would get out there and we'd ride these things and enjoy the waves. One uh, summer morning, we were out there really enjoying it, not paying attention to much. And we were right next to the Seal Beach Pier. And I turned to my next-door neighbor, Desi, and I said, Desi, we're awfully far out here. We're at the end of the pier. And then we looked back, and there's all these specks <laughs> on the beach. And we better go back in. Little did we know it was a riptide. And so we were getting pulled out. And then we saw some guys jumping in the water with buoys, B-O-U-Y-S. And they were swimming to us. I said, there must be somebody out there behind us who's in bad trouble. <laughs> Little did we know. And they came out to us, and they said, get off of those mats. And I looked at them. I looked how far we were from shore. I said, no way. I can't swim that far. They said, we'll take care of it. And we made us leave our mats out there in the water. They put their boys and their ropes around us and swam us parallel to the shore and then in, getting out of that riptide. They rescued us. A 13-year-old big crowd, a lot of cute girls watching us be helpless and get rescued. Embarrassing. But thankful. It's hard to admit you need rescued. But God has brought every one of us who name the name of Jesus to that point of realizing that we are helpless. At that point in time, he saved us. God rescued us. And then it says he transferred us. Uh, some of you guys have gotten transfers on jobs. You've been in a service. You've been transferred from one base to another. God transferred us from one kingdom to another. What kingdom had we been in? Who was our boss? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, and talking about then all the bad things, he says, then God stepped in. 
He officially transferred me from Satan's kingdom, from his domain, into Christ's. That was one of the temptations of Christ. Satan said, if you bet on worship me, I'll give you everything here. God transferred us. We now are citizens of his kingdom, no longer subject to Satan, the prince of this world. I don't know what it says to you, but it, boy, this resonates in my heart. And he says, here were the characteristics. There was redemption and forgiveness. Redemption. He bought me from Satan. What was the purchase price? Christ's own blood. He bought me. He redeemed me. And in that process, he forgave me. Your sins shall be as white as snow. God's put them behind his back, remembering them no more. Wow. Are you amazed that all that was in that one little two-letter word, in? That's what it means to be in Christ or in God. And so often we just read right past it to get to the good stuff. Let me read to you from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We'll not spend much time there because we have more to cover. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the great course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Well, he's working overtime these days, isn't he? Among them, we too also formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And the two most powerful words in the Bible. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In. Very important word. So that was our identity. What about their lifestyle? We're back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. He's always mentioning them in their prayers. Then he says in verse 3, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor and love labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Wow. Three little phrases, again, that that sound good, but unless you unpack them a little bit, um, you don't really get the picture. Uh, One of my, I think, the most effective way I know to study God's Word is with a question mark. Not just to read through it, and not, it's not questioning whether it's true or not, but well, what did he mean by that? Or how does that fit? I'm not sure I understand the word. How does that apply to me? As you ask that question, three little phrases jump out that as I looked into the more, just really blessed me. Work of faith. He saw their work of faith. He saw their labor of love. And he saw their perseverance of hope. Now, There's a progression here. You start with faith. That's the foundation of our relationship with Jesus Christ. When the Holy Spirit convicts us, 
we respond by trusting him as our Lord and our Savior. And it's out of that faith in Jesus Christ, putting everything at his feet, giving everything to him, that then allows God's love, the agape, others-oriented love, to grow in our hearts. So faith produces that love, that God's love, the John 3.16 love. And what that does is then produce in us hope. What is hope? It's different than a dream, different than a wish. It's not writing Santa Claus a letter. It's reality not yet experienced. It's looking forward to that last great day to eternity. There's a kind of a, a kind of a silly illustration, but salvation is a new pair of shoes. Hope is a new pair of shoes. Let me explain to you. Suppose I knew that you were shoeless and you desperately needed some shoes, didn't have any way to buy them or pay for them. I knew your size. I knew the style you liked. I knew where you'd be walking, so I know what kind of shoes to get. And I just happened to have some extra cash in my wallet. So I went to the shoe store, unbeknownst to you, and I purchased a pair of brand new shoes, your size, your style, perfect for what the conditions you'd be walking in. And I had the store clerk set them aside for you with your name on them. Have you experienced those shoes yet? No. Are they yours? Yes. I, without you doing anything about it, just because I love you, I bought you some news and I set them there. So you're sitting here looking at those shoes and you haven't yet experienced. You haven't put them on and walked around yet. That's kind of like what hope is with heaven. God gives us a lot of information of what it's going to be like, but leaves enough empty spaces for us to imagine and wonder and dream But it's real. He says it's there waiting for you. As I stand here looking to the rapture, longing for Jesus to appear and take us home with him, I believe it with all my heart that it's a reality that's coming, but I have not yet experienced it. That's hope. Think of those three words, faith, hope, and love. Where have you heard those before? How about 1 Corinthians chapter 13? Now abideth faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So we have faith building our love, building our hope. And then we look at the other descriptors. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your perseverance of hope. The word work there literally is just it's an act or a deed. It's a product. It's something you do. Think about Ephesians chapter 2. We read the first seven verses. Verses 8 through 10 says, For we are his workmanship created by God for these works that we should walk in them. So one of the outpourings of faith, the the natural things that the Holy Spirit does is he produces fruit in our lives. He produces actions so that we respond as God would respond. And we're doing not in order to gain his favor, but because he has favored us, we want to show that by Working it out. James chapter 2, he says, uh, You say you have faith and I have works. 
I by my, you, you show me your faith apart from works, and I by my works will show you my faith. When we were in college, uh, my wife Joan and I were part of our high school, our, our college group at church, and we had a, a, a theme. It sounds kind of silly, but it was by dot one ho. It sounds like a foreign language, but it's the King James Version of James, I think it's uh, 122 or 222. It says, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. By dot one. That was our theme. That was what motivated us trying to make sure that our faith was active, producing. He says it's a work of faith. Faith produces action. It's a labor of love. Now, that's a more intense word of working is talking about something where you sweat, you're toiling, it's uncomfortable, it hurts. It's something you want to quit doing. I was out using my uh, walk-behind lawn trimmer yesterday in our yard because my mower wouldn't work. And that was hard work, mowing those weeds. Uh, you know, 22-inch wide on an acre of land. It's not <laughs> took me a while. I got the, the backyard and the side yard done, but I was exhausted. I toiled, I sweated. I didn't want to do this anymore. It wasn't fun. If you're outwardly focused with God's love in your heart motivating you, motivated by the Holy Spirit, you're going to be involved in things that are uncomfortable because God's going to take you out of your comfort zone and he's going to lead you into things that are going to be blessings to other people that are part of God's plan for you but are not fun. It might even be a a serious illness. could be a loss of a job. It could just be putting up with some people that you don't want to put up with. But whatever it is, it's uncomfortable. And uh, it's labor. It's hard. And in talking about hope, it says perseverance. If you're involved in that kind of labor that's hard, and your eyes are focused on something that's real in the future, that's what helps you to keep going. Thus, the perseverance of hope. The word persevere there is oftentimes translated patience, it's a Greek word that literally means to remain under. It always is talking about circumstances. And it's your willingness to remain under whatever set of circumstances God has put you in, no matter how hard it is, until such that he would either remove it from you or take you through it. My inclination is to try to climb over or run around or tunnel under, get away from it because it's not comfortable. But God uses those. He helps you persevere because you know that what's here is not the end. That's the end, and I need to get there. That's what he was praising them for. As I pray for you, I make mention of my prayers, always remembering your work of faith, your labor of love, and perseverance of hope. So we get to verse 4, chapter 1. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. Another key word, knowing, beloved of brother, beloved of God, his choice of you. Who made the choice, you or God? I've heard somebody tell, I chose Jesus as my Savior. Did you know that that choice of Jesus as your Savior started with God who chose you? Did you know that? You go to Ephesians chapter uh, 1. Starting in 
Starting at verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he what chose you or chose us in him when before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on the earth. In him we've also obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there's that word again, according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge or a down payment of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. Dom, would you go ahead and put those bullet points up? He chose us in him before he ever created the earth. How could he do that? He didn't know me. Yes, he did. Tells us in the Old Testament that he knew me before I was even formed in my, father, in my mother's womb. Before the found, how can he do that? Do you remember what God told Moses when God, Moses asked him, What is your name? What did God say? Two words I am. Now, those are not just a name, that's describing the very essence of God. He is the eternal present tense. That's what Jehovah means. I am. That means, according to Scripture, he's the God who inhabits eternity. In eternity past, before he created the angels, before he created the earth, God is, not was, is. In eternity future, past the millennium, past the great white throne judgment, in eternity future in heaven, God is, not will be, but is. Right now in this building, with the body of believers, God is. I can't wrap my hand around that. I've got a finite mind. I think in past, present, and future, don't you? So there's no way we'll fully understand it, but I accept it. And as I understand that idea of God dwelling now in the past, present, and future to me, I understand how then he chose me. He's already here. He knows everything that's going on. God chose me in him. Not only sees the end from the beginning, he's in the end from the beginning. His sovereign choice chose you and me to be his children. And look at the things we just read there. In Ephesians, when we talk about 
the security of the believer. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us for this, to receive all the blessings that we're ever going to have. He says in the first few verses, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Is he has blessed us present or past tense? Past tense. He's already blessed us with all the blessings we're going to have in eternal life. Think about what those are. He's blessed us by declaring us righteous. He has adopted us as children. He's redeemed us. He bought us out of the marketplace, out of sin, out of Satan. He's revealed to us what's coming in the future. He's given us an inheritance. In 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, he calls it a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again unto a living hope that is undefiled, imperishable, and will not fade away. For you who are protected by faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a time you're having a tough time. That's my translation there. God has done this for you and me right now. And we have security in him. No one can take away what God has done in us and given to us. I love it. So, how did all this come about? What was their experience? Look at verses 5 and 6 back there in 1 Thessalonians. It says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Wow. So their experience, the gospel was preached. That's how it happened. But look at how it was preached. In power. In 2 Timothy 1.7 it says, God has not given us a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. The Holy Spirit produces that in us. And so as Paul and Silas preached in this synagogue for three Sabbaths, he was doing it powerfully. As we talked about earlier, what he did in opening the scripture to them. And it wasn't just Paul and Silas. Who else was there doing the preaching through them? The Holy Spirit. Joan and I went to a, a conference back in the 1970s, the Campus Crusade for Christ in Arrowhead Springs, California, a conference on evangelism for pastors. And I had been having trouble. I was, we had started a little church down in San Diego in Mira Mesa, and uh, basically I was knocking on doors. <laughs> and I was discouraged because I wasn't seeing a lot of doorpost door salvations, <laughs> put it that way. And I was wondering, am I, am I a failure? Am I being successful? And the guy got up, and the first thing he said, let me just give you a definition of, of success in evangelism. It's simply sharing the gospel of Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and here's the part that blessed me. And leaving the results to God. That's evangelism. That's what God's called us to do. That's what happened in that synagogue in Thessalonica. And then it says he did it in full conviction. He was bold. Uh, one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts in chapter 4. Uh, the apostles had been arrested 
for doing a healing on the Sabbath. And they were standing before the Sanhedrin. And uh, as they were there, they were, they were put in jail. And the, the next morning, during the night, they were miraculously uh, released by an angel. And they walked out through the gates that opened by themselves, went back to the church there in Jerusalem, and they were praying. But here's what they prayed. They prayed for boldness. Acts chapter 4, verse 31. They prayed for boldness in proclaiming God's word. This is in the context of just having been in jail and, and starting a persecution of the church. Praying for boldness. And it says immediately while they were praying, the place where they were in was shaken. And the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were filled with, guess what? Boldness. And they went out preaching the gospel confidently and boldly. So the gospel was preached and they received the word. It says, you became mimics or imitators of us and of the Lord having received the word. I think about that. Paul says, you became imitators of us. I wonder how many of us would feel confident in saying to somebody that we've led to the Lord. Now just follow me, do what I do. You'll be good. Any of you? No, we all said, no way. Because <laughs> we know who we are and what we do. Our godly Christian testimony ought to be such that every day we are walking examples. That if somebody wanted to know what is it like to be a Christian, they should be looking at us and say, be like that guy. And they received it in much affliction and joy of the Holy Spirit. Those don't fit well to me either. Because I, I sometimes equate joy with happiness. Do you? Uh, joy is totally different than happiness. Happiness depends on circumstances. And it ebbs and flows, you know, depending on what's going on, how you feel, what's going on around you. Joy is deep within you. It's, it's tied together inextricably, inextricably with peace. Peace and joy. It's knowing that all things are right between you and God. It's the Holy Spirit bearing witness with you that, yes, everything is okay. No, no matter what's going on around you, no matter what the storm, Jesus still says in your heart, peace, be still. So even though they were being afflicted and, and, and persecuted, beat up by these uh, people in Thessalonica, these early Christians had joy. The picture that comes to my mind is, is uh, Paul and Silas in uh, in jail. And they were down in the depths of the dungeon in Philippi. And they were singing hymns and praising God. And all the other prisoners saw that and wondered, what's going on with these guys? And then God sent an angel and opened all the doors. And the prison jailer was about to kill himself, thinking they'd all take, uh, taken off. And Paul says, no, wait, wait, we're all here. And the guy fell to his knees and said, oh, man, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, glad you asked. And you know the rest of the story. Joy in the midst of trying circumstances. So that brings me to uh, our takeaway. Asking you as Red Hills, asking you as Edgewood, asking me as myself, and you as your individual self. Does the Thessalonian experience that we've described here, 
does it resonate with you and does it describe you? Can we honestly call ourselves a vibrant church? Or are we just a bunch of nice people that get together every Sunday and do some good things together? Are we vibrating (laughs) for Christ? When others look at us, and they are looking at us in our community, what do they see? What does your lifestyle characterize? Is it characterized by work of faith, labor of love, perseverance of hope? Is that who they see when they see you? Is that who they see when they see us? And how about our testimony? This is hard. This is a tough question that's going to you're going to shy away from maybe. Are you able to, if somebody walked through that door and sat down next to you, are you able to strike up a conversation with that person? Explain with an open Bible how they can be right with God? And give evidence when they start arguing? Are you able to do that, to reason and explain and to give, give evidence, Peter says, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you, but do it with gentleness and love. There are times when I don't feel like that is me. And I'm a pastor. You know, that doesn't set me apart as any super saint. I struggle the same thing. We all struggle together with it. The self-confidence, the ability, the desire to get out of our comfort zone. But is our lifestyle characterized by what it should be? Is our testimony there and ready to be shared? And the last question is the hardest one of all. How about your passion? Is it your passion to share the gospel in power and the Holy Spirit and full of conviction. Uh, our, our dear brother Anthony uh, is probably driving home now from Colorado. I got a call from him on Friday saying that my wife's grandfather is in the last stages of, of cancer and he doesn't know the Lord. We're driving there. He has never responded as we've tried to witness to him. Please pray for us as we go to share the gospel with him. Is that your passion too for people you love or people you know and you know they don't know Jesus? Let our conversation be such that it's full of salt and light. Always ready to share the reason for, we, for our hope. Not shoving it down their throats, but being a light to those around us and letting the Holy Spirit do His work. If you pray that prayer and ask God to use you and bring you opportunities every morning to say, Lord, please bring me a divine appointment and help me to recognize it. Will he answer that prayer? You better believe it. But if he answers the prayer, what are you going to do about it? Lord, I thank you 